Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a Canadian immigration law podcast. I'm Stephen Murens. On today's episode, Diana Konachoff and I are joined by Robin Seligman, an immigration lawyer in Toronto. The topic that we are discussing is business immigration. A little bit of housekeeping first. First, we are currently posting the videos of the podcast, the live recordings on YouTube. The channel is called Borderlines Canadian Immigration Law Podcast. You can subscribe there. Also, we've switched podcast hosts, so if you aren't finding this podcast on your normal podcast player, please email me to let me know and uh, we can look into that. I hope you enjoy today's episode and also catch us on YouTube. In 1986, Canada introduced the investor category, the entrepreneur categories, and programs didn't really change uh, even after ERPA was introduced in 2002. Um, Quebec always had their own thing going on. They did an inv investor program. Um, and the way those programs worked were, were, you know, they reached out, they found uh, business people. And if they invested a certain amount of money, it, it went from like 200 and then it went up to 400,000. Um, you know, and, and they'd have to keep the money invested for a certain number of years. A lot of intermediaries got involved and bumped up fees and stuff like that. But the program worked quite well. And uh, and then I think due to abuse, and, and that was probably because of intermediaries and trying to finance the investments and, and sort of trying to take advantage of the program, the government got their back up and suspended uh, the programs in 2012 and then fully terminated them in 2014. But they were always boutique programs and they brought in really good people. It looks like you want to ask me a question, Deanna. I do. I do. <clears throat> were those mostly like passive in investment programs? Like they weren't uh, 
they were just looking for people who wanted to like strictly just to invest. It wasn't that they were looking for people with particular business skills. They were just looking for people with money that they were going to put into existing No, no, they don't have to have a business background. It was for business people um, that allowed them to put money in, not even to a particular project. Uh, the investor category was actually an investor category, not in the sense that you got a return for your money, but um, it was a passive program and it was no, it was known to be a passive program. There was no requirement to do anything other than the background. You had to be a business person with um, a number of years experience. You could be a senior executive at um, a company and, uh, and qualify with your business experience that way. And you would put your money in and uh, that was it. The, the 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 entrepreneur category was totally different. That was actually an active, you had to be actively involved. You had to, you came in with terms and conditions and you had to employ, I think it was two Canadians and you had to, in a certain period of time and there was all kinds of restrictions. So the government got out of that game because people came over as permanent residents under that program. And then if they didn't meet their terms and conditions within, I think it was probably two years, then they would have to start taking away their permanent residence. And that got really messy. I'm sure you can understand because they were bringing their spouses, their children. At that point, they owned homes. They were, you know, and a lot of them came over and didn't do business or they tried to do business and found it really difficult to do business here. So they sort of dropped their families off after a certain while and just went back a lot of times or back and forth. But the investor category was truly an investor category in the sense of passive. Uh, and Quebec still has that program, which opens and closes, uh, still running to this day. And the, the problem with that is the government collected huge amounts of money um, and didn't do anything with it. Like they were given, you know, let's say $200,000, $250,000, $400,000. I don't know whatever happened with that money. And... I think that's when one of the governments looked at this, and I think it was a conservative government looked at it and said, no, 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 we don't want to be in the game of buying visas. And um, but it wasn't it wasn't really buying visas. They were giving them money. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate that the government never did anything with the money. I mean, I I don't see anything wrong with, you know, successful business people putting in, you could do it now. You could say like, you know, put in a million dollars, as long as you're not a criminal, as long as you've earned the money, you're a business entrepreneur, we'll take your money and maybe we'll put it into like an infrastructure fund for the, you know, for the country. We'll put it into, a, you know, a health healthcare fund. You know, personally, I don't have a problem with that. Most countries around the world have that type of program. Most of them are real estate based and you've heard of them in Europe and St. Kitts and, and in the Caribbean. The Americans have their EB-5 program where they put in, I think it's still half a million dollars, um, you know, and they invest in a project. So this is something that's become very popular. And Canada has absolutely gone the other way and just sort of shut it down. I just think they can't be bothered to, to deal with this type of program. So I started practicing kind of towards the end of these programs when, you know, you'd mentioned that there was abuse occurring. Had that become more pronounced over time? Like, did it start with a certain type of applicant and people representing, and then it morphed into something less what they were seeking? Yeah, I think it's a combination of, okay, but this is strictly my opinion. I think once you start getting third parties involved and consultants out there selling projects and doing things, inevitably it leads to the downfall of the program because it just becomes so distorted uh, and fees are high and, you know, it, it just goes out of whack. And, and I think 
it's funny, you, you know, it's good, interesting you mentioned that because I think that's probably where the startup visa program is going. That's our current program because it started as a little boutique program for innovators, people that could compete on a world-class level, people that would create jobs for Canadians. Now everybody's got an app. <laughs> like you have, it, you have it being abroad being, you know, just sold and, and resold and, and wrapped up in charges and fees and, um, and, you know, and it's a tiny little program. You know, there's 3,500 spots for, I think, 2023 and then going up to 5,000 in 2024. And, you know, it's taking 37 months to process. And yeah, people are just going back uh, to the investor program. So in British Columbia, I don't know if you know this, Deanna, that the, you know, when you're driving to the airport and there's that BCIT campus with the planes in it. You know where the big, like the WestJet plane when you're oh, driving? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, road? I know what you mean. That's, um, that's the investor program that loaned and funded the money for that. That's oh. the only thing that I'm aware where investor funds went in BC. Uh, hmm. There's a, uh, there used to be a company called, just pulled it up, the BC Immigrant Investment Fund Limited. Um, and they list the different projects that they funded. And that's, I mean, there's a bunch of other ones throughout the province, but that's the big one. So every time I drive past that, I think. That's the investor program. <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah, investor so, program. I mean, I don't know. What do you what do you think about, you know, passive investment? I mean, again, you have to have the background. It's not for anybody. I inherited $10 million and I want to do this. It's for people with an entrepreneurial or business background. Um, I think the at least so when I, the understanding that I had was that it was being viewed as a retirement program, less than a business immigration program. That's just the sense that I got from it. Um at least from the people who contacted me was that it was like, I have a business background and I want to retire. Um, and maybe it would have been different if there was like a language, was there, if there was a stronger language test component, but I always viewed that. Yeah. As more of a, a passive investor program, like with people who were choosing that over the say entrepreneur program, because they didn't want, to run businesses, um, although then they closed the entrepreneur program. So that's at least the they, they have, We had a retirement program. I don't know if you know that as well. There was a no, retirement program. So that, what was the retirement program? It was that. It was like you had enough money to retire and you'd establish mm -hmm. a residence and bring your family over. They just wanted people that had assets and could afford to retire in Canada. So in uh, practice, what was the difference? The retirement program didn't require... No intention, yeah, no intention to uh, establish a business and and run a business in Canada. Okay. The other thing I'd heard as to why they closed the program was that it was based on these five-year interest-free loans that people would make to the government, and the government would, like in theory, the benefit to the government was they were getting all this money as a loan that they didn't have to pay interest on, but when interest rates went down to like close to zero it became a question of like, well, is the government even making money on this now? Or is it costing more to administer if there's no interest rate savings? And maybe now that interest rates are, depending on how long they stay up, maybe there will be interest again, pardon the pun, in terms of like, now that there'd be profits. But you know what? I don't think it should have been a loan anyways. I thought it always should have been a gift. You yeah. know, why, why is the government in the business of giving interest-free loans, right? I think it should have been, you know, put your money in. If you have enough money to qualify and it's not going to cripple you, 
uh, and you have a business background, just put your money in and that's it. You don't get it back. And there'd be so many people lined up to do that. They'd say, fine, mm -hmm. that's the cost of mm -hmm. coming over. Happy yeah. to do it, right? So I wouldn't have really thought about this in these terms, but, um, you know, sometimes I'll be consulting someone and they're, they're really, they're really essentially refugee claimants, but for the life of them, they don't want to make a refugee claim because of the uncertainty, because of the trauma, because they don't want to have to talk about what they face. They they know that as soon as they make a refugee claim, they're going to get a removal order against them. And that unless they succeed, that, you know, all of those things, they have the money. If they had the choice of just passively investing that money, even if it's as a gift, they would happily do that uh, rather than, and many of them have profound business skills. Um, and so for me, if they could choose that, rather than going through the refugee process, they would do that in a heartbeat. And to me, if Canada could offer that as an option rather than, and many of them will choose to try immigration programs and refu economic immigration programs. I think it's a lost opportunity for Canada. It's a lost opportunity for the refugee because just even the, the dignity things that put them through a refugee process when they would happily pay to avoid it. Yeah. Uh, I understand that for some, one of the other issues that I think I understand is that there are always questions in terms of source of funds and just in terms of the challenges of getting funds out of certain states and all of that kind of thing. But if those could be resolved, um, I don't have any ethical quandary around giving somebody an out uh, that, that they could use. I mean, I, I think like I with all these programs, I don't know if it's an ethical quandary, but the counter would be like, are there concerns about buying your way in? Um, yeah, I don't have. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why that all governments seem to have that concern, too. And I, I mean, I don't know, forget, like, take off our lawyers hats. But as Canadians, I don't have a problem, like set the amount high so everybody can fit in the category, expand the category. Why is it so tiny? We're bringing in 500,000 immigrants. We can only afford 3,500 spots for business people, startup visa and self-employed and together. It's it's ridiculous. It's it's just too small a program for the demand, right? Yeah. So and if somebody could like invest half a million dollars, put that into the refugee system and their family comes in, you know, I don't, I don't have too much of a problem. Yes. Maybe it's buying a visa. I, I don't think I can get, you know, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be too bothered by that, honestly. Yeah, I agree. Like, and, and I mean, I guess you could frame it not buying a visa. It's investing in Canada and social enterprise you have the right background to invest in Canada. Right. So, yeah, I yeah. think it's the way, I don't know why the governments feel that this is something that they can't do, other than Quebec, of course, because Quebec has maintained the Quebec investor program yeah. on and off. They don't have a problem with it, right? But I think so the stats, like when, uh, I think, it was, I can't remember if it was Kenny or Chris Alexander who terminated the uh, the investor program. I think it was Alexander, because I vaguely remember him talking about it when he was on the podcast, was they had that stat that the investor immigrants were paying less income taxes than refugee claimants. Although they had invested all this money, um, but then that's you know, there's no, other no, issues I, I there without the taxes. I think that's a legitimate point. I mean, yeah. but but not in a good. Not that I support the government on that. I would say, you know what? Um, if you come in in that category, let's say where you've put money in 
um, you should also be obligated. First of all, you have the residency obligations, um, you know, and that should also be something that, you know, you have to pay taxes. Like you should have to declare your assets, declare income and pay taxes um, in order to maintain your status or something like that. You think you could tie it into taxes if you want. Yeah. Well, I think they were indirectly because part like, what were they called? The astronauts where they'd be in the investor yeah. who would be in like generally China at the time and their family here. And because we tax people as individuals, the family here that lived in a mansion wouldn't have to pay taxes because the investor is overbroad or overseas. And I think at one point, even they were even looking at like now doing taxation based on family. Um, but that kind of went nowhere. But so that's sort of the, the history. Now, if we look at where we are now, if someone came to you and said, I want to start a business in Canada, or I'm here as a foreign worker on an open work permit running a business, what options do they have? Okay, well, the first option I look at is not a business category. Okay, that's the first assessment <laughs> I do is, do you speak French? What does your wife do or your spouse do? You know, look at every possibility other than business programs, because really the startup visa program and the self-employed are the only direct paths to permanent residence. I mean, every provincial, and then then you're stuck with provincial nomination programs. Yeah. And I mean, you can probably tell me more about the BC programs. I know in Ontario, it's been the most underutilized, insignificant program, I think, of any of the programs. Uh, I think the numbers, you look at them, you may have had like three people going through in a year, two people yeah, going through in a year. Yeah, that's less than a year. It's crazy. And just, I think yesterday, a couple of days ago, they paused the entire entrepreneur program in Ontario. So, and oh. the other ones are all coming in on work permits and, you know, so what you have to do is look at all possibilities, you know, what PNPs are available, where do they have family ties? Uh, a lot of times, you know, don't forget to ask, like, where would you like to settle? You know, where are you thinking of settling instead of me saying, well, what about Alberta or what about, you know, BC? Yeah. Um, so BC, I'm... there were 34 people nominated in 2022. Yeah, so really. So very small. But so like, well, we should address the main issue. So like, why wouldn't an entrepreneur who's worked in Canada on their business just go through express entry in the Canadian experience class? Well, you know, they don't get points, number one, for um, Canadian work experience. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times with people in that category, the age knocks them out of express entry because a lot of times they'll be in their late 30s or 40s. Um, language is always an issue a lot of times with um, people that, you know, fit that profile that are yeah. starting businesses or have businesses. Um Funny you ask because we're actually just putting in a, a proposal from the Ontario Bar Association uh, to the Ontario government about something called the Ontario Business Economic uh, Entrepreneur Class, which we have recycled because we've tried to use this for the Canadian government, I think, for the past 10 years, where basically you say, if you have um, run a business in, in Canada, let's say you came as a spouse on an open work permit for a student or, you know, uh, any, it, you know, it doesn't have to be employer-specific work permit. If you have set up a business, if you have employed Canadians for a certain period of time, if you have basic uh, language skills, then you should be pulled. You should have a separate category to pull you uh, for the Canada Business Experience class or the BC yeah. Business. I mean, you've already put your money where your mouth is. You're, I'm doing it, right? Um, whereas a lot of these entrepreneur programs are looking forward like, oh, will you be able to set up a business, come in on a two-year work. That's what BCs is like. They don't count what you've already done. Why, what's weird? the like history behind why self-employment doesn't count in Canada? 
Like what? under under the ministerial instructions for express entry, you just don't get points for self-employment. But is there like is there a reason why why they developed it that way? I think so. foreign self-employment counts, Canadian doesn't, has always been sort of a weird just distinction. And if anything, you'd think you'd be more suspicious of foreign self-employment. Yeah. I think yeah, it's exactly. they can't assess it. Yeah. I think it's just that um you know, we've talked about this so many times in different ways on the show is that there's this presumption of fraud, you know, and if they don't have any third party to rely on to verify the period of employment, they assume that it's cheat, you know, and, and so, um, you know, that's why it's just easier for them to assess uh, a T4. It's easier for them to assess a record of employment. It's easier for them to like look at a big company issuing a letter on letterhead. As soon as it's a letter from you about you, they just are like, ah, I'm going to presume that this is yeah. uh, inauthentic. It's just, it's lazy. Uh, anyways, this is me getting uh, hot-headed, but uh, <laughs> I think it's just easier to do an a, a, a conventional employer employee relationship and self-employment that that's always what I've that's my conspiracy theory put it that way no I I agree with you I just think they just assume if you say you're self-employed you must be lying about something and, and yeah. I've seen one where I've, I saw uh, a dentist who came in and um, her she worked on a contract with with an, a dental office and it was she was self-employed that's just the way they structured the deal and they do that with a lot of professionals and um, she had gone into express entry and they refused her. They wouldn't accept her self, self-employed experience for employment in Canada, even though it was clear she was working as a dentist. She was getting paid as a dentist. But because it was under a contract where they didn't deduct taxes, they refused her. So that's how ridiculous. Yeah. I and they've had that. to do a specific carve out recently for the doctors who work for yeah. provincial health authorities, which it's crazy, actually, how long that took yeah but there are so many industries that are like this like it's the same with the film industry where you know so many people just work on deal memos it's the same for geologists i discovered through some strange application you know um there i mean even most uh many lawyers i think there's probably a good half of lawyers who practice they incorporate they practice on a self-employed basis essentially uh, you know so so um so yeah, I think it's just um I don't I don't know exactly where it came from, but but here we are. Yeah. The other thing that um I look at with people, let's say they came over um C11, which is for business people that want to set up a business in Canada, C10, significant benefits, um intercompany transfers under C12. Um if people are over and running a business and they come over on the work permit, then um, I've been successful in getting 200 points for them, depending on the position for arranged employment under express entry. And hopefully that will continue. But even now with 200 bonus points, if you're a senior position and in you know your own business, um, it's not enough points to get qualified now because I don't know if you've looked at the express. Oh, the entry. points are... <laughs> I think 560, 550. So even these people that are running their own businesses and getting the 200 bonus points can't qualify. So there's not a lot of options for for business people, which I really think is horrible. It's just not acceptable. It's very. The thing that I find a little weird. ironic too is that, well, 
something that makes perfect sense from a business strategy perspective, from a tax planning perspective, is disadvantageous from an immigration perspective. So you would go to your business lawyer, to your tax lawyer, they say, well, this is how to structure your business, but you have to decline all that advice in order to not put yourself out of the running for permanent residency. That's the kind of nonsense that I feel like people are trying to wrap their heads around right now. And even doing that now um, with the recent draws, like since the summertime, they're not going to qualify anyway. So they've gone through all this gymnastics and, you know, it's just like, sorry, you're not qualified yet. So what are the options when, you know, you're, you're here running a business and you just don't qualify for anything again. So obviously look at the spouse, but um, you have to keep extending their status. Like they just have to keep running the business and, um, you know, hopefully a, a category opens up. Um, and in that interim, hopefully they don't get refused on the basis that they've all of a sudden gotten a permanent intention instead of temporary because they keep extending and extending and waiting. Yeah. And that's a good point because um, at, at any point you can get an officer that says, okay, enough is enough. You've been here for five years, four years running a business. You yeah. know, 11 is not supposed to be permanent, but you, you don't have a category to go into. Right. So. In a self-employed class, it's not clear. Well, that's limited to culture and athletics. Yeah. And at a, at a world nothing's class happening level. at a world class level. So it's something we've talked about on the podcast before. I'm curious to know where you think it's heading, Robin. Like the gap between the number of people coming on work permits and how hard it is to now qualify for permanent residence, unless you speak intermediate French. So like the uh, like yeah. where do you where do you think it, it's heading? Because it felt like the gap was getting really large. Then there was a COVID pandemic that kind of leveled things out, and now it's just shot back up. They like basically has admitted so many temporary residents to basically get back to where they were in terms of this gap. Where is it heading? Well, I think that what they're going to do is they are, they've announced they're cracking down on the student visa program because again, a lot of abuse going on there. So if they really tighten up designated learning institutions and really have legitimate schools on there, not a lot of these, in my opinion, a lot of these private schools that are strictly turning out international students to, you know, and, and a lot of them aren't even eligible for postgraduate work permits, but that whole industry has to be reined in. Um, I don't think they've done enough yet by just saying you have to have more money for the international student. I think they have to actually go to each province. And it's on my list of things to do to go to the province of Ontario, the Ministry of Education, say, how do you become a designated learner? How do you become accredited in the province? Like, what is the criteria? How is it that ABC Global or ABC 123 in a mall in Brampton is a legitimate school? So I think every province has to do that. Or the Fed said, we're going to crack down. I don't know how they're doing that. But that, that's not uh, to, to clean up the mess that's been created, but maybe going forward to try and rein in the number of international students um, for the schools that shouldn't really be on that list. I don't think it should affect proper schools, yeah. but it may tighten that up. Um, maybe they have to give longer postgraduate work permits, maybe more points for Canadian experience. I mean, I'm really a believer in if you're here working and you're doing it you should get priority over people that are abroad i i, no, you know, I, I always I'm, have a uh, there's um there's a uh, i don't know if you know kubir he's a an immigration consultant with a huge youtube channel and a lot of his audience is in india and every time i go on his show i say that 
I wouldn't do any invitations for people who are outside Canada, as long as there are still possible, uh, you know, people who could do CEC. And it's probably one of the only times I get hate mail. <laughs> like yeah, but, the, but you know what? Like, like, you know, those people that we, you know, the Canada Experience class people, they're here. They're, they've yeah. invested in education. They're here on work permits. Like, you know, I, unfortunately, because we just can't let everybody in, if you're going to limit it, then limit it to the people that have, have are here. You know, international student visas, I would make sure there are a minimum of two-year programs at legitimate schools. Um, you know, same with the work permits, if they've been here working. You know, why are they doing general draws? Why aren't they doing draws just for CEC? You know, yeah. why aren't they doing draws, you know, giving more points? For Canadian work experience and Canadian education, it's minimal. Like, why are you you're getting hardly any points, uh, you know, for these factors that are are fundamental. Yeah. So, the other thing is that the um, the government is uh, supposed to be revamping the temporary foreign worker program. What that means, I I don't know at this stage. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. Yeah, I mean, the minister has commented that, yeah, rein it in. I think were his exact words i don't know i have no idea what he means yeah i i don't know either so oh there you go yeah i find that this minister compared to previous ones almost makes like statements as if it's testing the waters to see what the public response will be um because sometimes it, it seems like they'll almost say contradict like two contradictory things in the same day like i don't see a world in which we reduce the immigration level we're open to everything as long to get housing under control. Uh, it's, it's hard to it's hard to know where the government plans on going. So the Ontario like business America, so it's really small. Um... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. And is it is it expression of interest like it is in BC where all the businesses are ranked against? Yeah. Yeah. And they have to come up with a performance agreement and a business plan. And they even had another category called the OINP Succession Success Initiative. So they retained um, an organization 
to go out and try and bring in business people from around the world and try and get them to uh, put their, it was $200,000 outside the GTA, right? So get them outside of Toronto area. And I don't even think that was successful because when I just checked the website before, it looks like that one's been archived yeah. as well. So, you know, there you are, like $200,000 to go into outside the GTA. They couldn't even fill that. So the problem with the OIMP is you're, you're in an expression of interest. You don't know whether you get pulled or not pulled. You do get pulled. Then you got to go prove your money. So you have to go one of the accounting companies that they rec they tell you have to go to get your assets assessed um, for for uh, proof of funds and uh, providence of funds. Yeah. And then you know if you're lucky enough, at some point you'll get a nomination to come in and do a two year work permit. And then you have to meet all the terms of your performance agreement within I think it's eighteen months or twenty months. And then you can apply for permanent residence if you do all that. So you're looking at uh, when we calculated, usually it's like three or four years to go through that program. So if there were any faster program, there were faster programs. It was through express entry. Um, if you had got the 200 range employment points or it was under startup visa, used to be 12 months, now it's 37 months. But, you know, and, and now they just suspended the Ontario program, which was becoming more attractive because everything else was so lousy and, and they just suspended it. So, you know, I, I, I'm on the executive of, I chair a committee for the um, Ontario Bar Association dealing with the OINP and we are actually putting in submissions next week to head up. I have a OINP question that like, so coming from BC, there's regular draws for general skilled workers. And I don't do a lot of Ontario OINP, but like the, what has astounded me although it hasn't impacted any of my files really, but like what has astounded me is it seems like there hasn't been a general OIMP draw for like two years or a year and a half without explanation or even a heads up that that was happening. Like is the OIMP always that unpredictable and like was did lawyers in Ontario get like a heads up that maybe I just wasn't aware of of, hey, no, no, we're no, not going to no, be like not. doing invites. So we yeah, yeah like I don't, I don't. So what have companies been doing in Ontario, where like a program just kind of just stops? Yeah, well, and, and people are languishing in these pools, like the employer job offer stream. So you have senior executives that just can't qualify under Express Entry due to age, due to some education, maybe never going to qualify. And they used to be the ones that would get picked up, and same with a lot of trades would get picked up. So yeah, so they. They started, uh, your timing is right, probably a year and a half, two years ago, they just started doing targeted draws, I guess during COVID, only targeted draws. And they haven't changed. And they do a lot of French draws. And then it could be French and targeted. So you not only have to be a healthcare worker, but you have to be fluent, you know, have proficiency in French. So, you know, and they keep targeting the same people that they're laying off. Like, you know, you hear about layoffs in the tech industry and they're busy. That's who they're targeting, people in the tech industry, STEM, which is fine, but maybe adjusted a little bit to, you know, deal with the current circumstances. Trades always get shafted in, in every program, I think federally and provincially as well. Um, mm. The trades that they pull have to go through express entry and you can see the points are so ridiculous. Even with a 200 yeah. point nomination, you're just not going to get pulled if your points are 200 points. And then plus the nomination of 50 points or whatever you just can never get pulled right no so. that killed me when they announced that hey we've done our first trades draw in express entry and i was just looking at it going there's literally a federal skilled trades program that you guys just don't use like i don't know why yeah. i had to create 
a whole new program. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's we don't have so British Columbia, the PMP here doesn't have a francophone program yet. I think it's something that there needs to be a conversation as to whether the given that it's a zero sum game, whether prioritizing francophones who are destined to work outside of Quebec in jobs that don't require French is the best use of allocation. Okay. I feel like I'm going to get some pushback and flack on this, but like, I don't know. I just, it's, I don't, given all the needs of, for different, you know, like when you look at the express entry categories, trades, okay, I can see that STEM, sure. Francophone where there's no, there's no French component um, to their work here. I just, yeah. I, I, I I am not convinced it's the best the best allocation of spots. I, I, I sort of my, my my husband's a writer, and so sometimes I think about things in terms of like a writer's room. And uh, you know, when you have like a whole bunch of people around the table, and everyone has an idea, and you can see those ideas, like when you're watching a movie or a television episode, you can see all of the different ideas around the table come in. But when nobody has had like a singular mind that figures out how all of these things work together in the system, you can still end up with an entirely incoherent film or an entirely incoherent television episode. So while the idea of tradespeople, the idea of business skills, the idea of trying to bring people out to the various regions outside of the big urban centers, all of these ideas, I can understand how any government is like, these are the things we wish to achieve overall make sense. But because there are so many, like, and this is something we've talked about repeatedly on the program, because we are seeing so many different program design initiatives, and even within IRCC, the department is so like, divided up into different departments and different initiatives. And I just feel like none of them are really fully speaking together, we have such an incoherent program design. And so we can talk until we're blue in the face about who's being missed and what's happening and all this kind of stuff. Um, we all have examples from our own practice of people that like, we just can't in any way understand why this particular client or this particular applicant has absolutely no option to immigrate or why they can't even extend their permit. Like there's no policy rationale for why this person cannot remain in Canada. And I think that that's what we're all struggling with as practitioners. And we're trying to figure out ways of expressing it. We're talking about it in theoretical terms. But I think if we went around the table here and we came up with the case that's like the most absurd, um, I think it would really illustrate the point that we're trying to make here. Yeah, I think that's the most intelligent thing said on a podcast with a dog on someone's lap. Yeah, and, so and big, look at your hand. Big, yeah, and, and a big milestone for the podcast too, having the dog now. Because like I feel like the yoga YouTube channels, there's always a dog. <laughs> um, going back to what you were saying, so Robin, the uh, the Ontario the, the proposal for the Canada business class. What would it What would it look like? And if there is the fraud concern, like what what are the what are how how would that be addressed through the program that the OBA is uh, proposing? Okay, well, just to let you know, it was a CBA initiative, and we're yeah. recycling it because we've tried. I've tried to put it forward to the the uh, government, federal government, so many years. They all just say, "Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea," and they never do anything with it. So we said, "All right, 
let's send it to Ontario. We'll call it the Ontario uh, Entrepreneur Business Class. So the idea was, and the criteria can change, if you um, set up a qualifying business, and that would have to be defined, and if you run that business for, let's say, a year or maybe two years, and if you've employed Canadians, and you can objectively provide proof of that, and you know, add in whatever criteria you have, and you go into an expression of interest pool, maybe, um, it, I don't think it would go through express entry. And they go in there and they pick people that have a proven track record of running businesses and employing Canadians. And they could even put criteria if they're outside the GTA, inside the GTA, maybe more job creation. So they could do that. But instead of looking forward and saying, oh, you're not here yet. Will you be able to do that in the future? They're looking backwards and saying, okay, you're here and you've done it and you've had status and you've been, as I said, it could be an open work permit on a spouse's postgraduate work permit or on a student visa, or it could be a free trade work permit, you know, IEC. If long as they're here legally and have been doing it, like those seem to me or to us to be the best people to keep here. Because they're so already would it be just done through tax filings or what would like if they are concerned about fraud, is it through verifiable T4s? Like yeah, what would be the... Yeah, you could have T4s, you could have CRA documents, your you know, one, two fives or whatever you file with federally and provincially and proof that you're paying taxes. It could be an accountant's letter or you know, proper chart CPA. Um, yeah. And your T4s, T4 summaries, uh, identification for the people that you're employing, the positions that you're employing them in. I think it's easy, easy to document, right? And, you know, to me, that's, they're people that are here. So when you're talking about there's so many people here that can't transition. Why are we looking out and saying, oh, let's bring that person in. Let's bring this person in. When they're already here doing this and you're saying no, because under the Ontario program, they wouldn't let you go into that entrepreneur program if if you've been running your business for let's say you made up a number a year or more so they arbitrarily excluded people that had actually been here so it just didn't make it doesn't make sense so i don't know what does bc do tell me about i i you know i hear it's about similar i don't i mean it's it's so niche like bc is basically there's kind of divided the same as i guess ontario it's the vancouver there's thresholds if it's Vancouver, which is the base entrepreneur program, and then there's a regional entrepreneur program. There's you know, it's business experience requirement, investment requirement, job creation requirement. But kind of like you, like, and it sounds like in Ontario, I generally avoid it just because it's forward looking. You have to get the province's approval before you start. Um, and then you're locked into these performance agreements that generally if someone is going to make the commitments required for the PMP entrepreneur program, I feel like they would get the 200 points in express entry. Express entry. Now it may be different now that the points threshold is so high for express entry, uh, but I don't see the PMP business category meeting that gap. There's also really niche that I've never done community-based programs, um, but it's such a small allocation. What, what about um, like the draws that they're doing in BC for people that are there working? Like how, how is that working? Uh, it's high. So the big change that was done in BC, I want to say, I can't remember if it was 2022 or 2023, was they used to do points largely in part based on the skill of the job. So if it was knock double O or tier double zero, that would be worth more points. An engineer, for example, would get more points than a uh, a retail food supervisor 
they got rid of all that and it's prioritized now essentially on wage um where the wage threshold's high like to get the top number of points you have to be earning 150 or above Really? uh yeah and you almost get you get very few it's basically a six-figure program Really? So that's how they're, but they're, then they're missing out a lot of the, they'd be missing out all the trades. Uh, oh, trades. Well, unless have, you're well, in a unless there's, scholar. so there are specific, uh, let me check now the specific categories because um, I get confused with the Because we always the federal hear that you just but, work there for six months and then you can go. So that, that, that was it until the recent changes. There's also a big impact now on, um, if you graduated from outside of Vancouver and if you're working from outside of Vancouver. And when the changes were announced, I actually like tried to run the math and I said, okay, graduating out, graduating at say UVic and working on the island is worth something like $50,000 in the, uh, the wage grids. But they also have, yeah, so there's a construction, there's specific draws for childcare, construction, healthcare, veterinary care, early Stand. childhood educator, yeah, and the tech, uh, general points are high now but i think more important than the general points being high is the reallocation of um points away from uh away from skill level of job to wage with the wage threshold going way up and uh region of employment so oh, BC I... is less well if you're outside of Vancouver it's it's we get just a lot of points. Okay. So you, you it used to be that if you've been that. educated in Canada, you were working in your employer in the job, you were working, you'd been there for a year, that that would sort of tip the balance, but now mm -hmm. it's kind of being tipped so that salary is just really uh it tips the balance. Uh, you really how, need how does it work with the ones you said, like the construction trade, the um, educators? Are, they're a separate. They're a separate category. So how does that work? So they're just uh, the points. It's kind of like Express Entry. They input all the same information, but the uh, the number of points needed is less. And there's this list of twenty five construct. Basically, all the construction, anything starting with tier seven that's skilled, um, has a lower points threshold. But it kind of goes to what you were saying before, though, how like they all keep targeting the same people. So there's express entry, construction specific draws. There's PMP, construction specific draws. Everyone, uh, and it, it, you know, I don't think it's that uncommon that while you're waiting for your PMP application to be approved, we'll just get an express entry invitation and then withdraw the provincial nominee application, which is, I don't know, it seems a bit of a waste that they're all going after the same people. Yeah, that, that seems to be a consistent prob problem with all the programs. And then um, you mentioned outside the the rural the rural programs where you have to get community support, and those are so niche and so boutique. We have the rural and northern immigration program, which you know it's not just for Ontario. There's a bunch of northern communities. I don't think I know anybody that's ever gotten through on that. Um, you know, so the the options are limited. So it, it's becoming much more complicated. But it's good for like, the, I mean, so for them, I'm sure they're like, well, the politics, we can respond to things quick. Oh, well, this is what they do federally. It's like every express entry invitation that's category specific is a press release going, we got a housing shortage. We just invited 1000 people to build houses. Oh, the doctor, like that seems to be uh, where they're heading with 
these category draws. I thought there was going to be a Ukraine draw initially. I was wrong about that. But the, even the points for the, the uh, if you look at the category, the points are still high. Yeah. You know, they're, it's not like they're 200, 300. They're like the mid to high 400s for a lot. Of, even for um, construction, for transportation, they're in the high 400s. Yeah, it's... Um, which, which truck drivers are getting 480 points? Like, I, I don't understand. No, it's... Uh, well, where's... Yeah, even for... I was about to say, look, yeah, it's all four. I remember when... Um, yeah, when the baseline for express entry dipped to 415. Uh, and now it's in the 550s. I don't know. I really don't know where... Like, there's going to be so many people who come here and can't stay that... Um, it has to be multiple years of Canadian experience, really. Like, I mean, so you don't get that many extra points for like Canadian experience. No, you don't. Like, one and it doesn't offset age for sure, and it yeah. won't. Like, it's it's very weird to me that there is no kind of catch-all program for like the CEC applicants who are kind of falling through the through the cracks, who have been here working for years and they're getting picked kind of like Robin was saying after people who have never been here um, where you're not even sure if it will or will not work out for someone who's never been here. And you raise, you raise a good point because as the more Canadian work experience they get, the older they're getting. So they're losing points at 30 under um, express entry. So they have to raise that. I, I always had a problem with that 30 start losing points because anybody who goes to school does a master's degree, they're just really, a lot of them are starting their careers in their late 20s, right? So to start penalizing them at 30 is ridiculous, right? Yeah, so when I was younger, I didn't have a problem with it. As I'm getting older and I'm no longer getting max points, I'm starting to starting to see the annoyance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I also wonder like how many of those in their 30s actually know where they're going to stay for good. You know, I think those that are sort of in the higher age groups, like if they are applying for permanent residency, it may well be that they're actually intending to stay here for good. Whereas if you're applying for permanent residency in your 30s, that doesn't necessarily mean you're committed to remaining in Canada. It might just be a stop stopping. Maybe point. maybe bonus points for 40 plus. Yeah. Yes. Well, especially with housing where you can't you can immigrate, not afford to live here. And then uh, there's all these reports now of people going back. Well, I mean, it takes us back to what can be done. And I think if I think the government really has to focus on trying to clear out the people that are here um, instead of reaching abroad and, you know, really adjusting points to, to take into consideration people that are successfully established in Canada uh, and trying to clear them out and trying to clear up the schools and clear up all the the fraud that goes on abroad, like the whole thing with international students is just despicable. What's going on with these education consultants and the consultants and all the promotion of schools and, and the, the, you know, the misrepresentations to these people bringing their, you know, their kids here. Yeah. I mean, it feels like 2023 was the year where the immigration consensus in Canada started to really crack. Mm -hmm. Um and I think 2024 will be the year of the political repercussions for it. The thing that I find so tragic about that is that people being taken advantage of are now being vilified too, because, um, you know, I think that there's a total lack of sympathy that's happening. And now, you know, what we were talking about earlier with that um, assumption being made that, sort of guilty until proven innocent 
the dog mm-hmm. is really not doing me any favors today, but um, it's leading to such a high rate of refusal at visa offices, even when it is a truly genuine application. And having an applicant have to prove the genuineness is becoming a, an incredible burden. Yes, for students. Yeah, and there's just a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of fraud going on abroad with these, you know, people helping people apply to different schools and the schools collaborating, it's it just despicable, you know, what's going on. And Agreed. And, but I feel like the, the idea, like what you're saying is sort of shifting the onus back onto the Canadian government. It's on you to do that vetting because for the, I mean, and Steve and I have talked about this, about, you know, um, that, the the jurisprudence has sort of said, okay, students, you need to be doing your due diligence. But how is a student viably supposed to be doing their due diligence when they're there? They can't come and walk into and see that the ABC one two three is in a mall. You know, um, how are they supposed to legitimately doing be doing that due diligence? Whereas the Canadian government is fully equipped to be figuring out which ones are the the appropriate DLIs that should have these privileges and that the others should not. Yeah, yeah that was that case where what, when they were um, where they were like, oh yeah, there was no dil- due diligence done to verify if this letter of acceptance was real. And it's like, really? When I went on exchange, I didn't contact the university in Europe to go, hey, can you just confirm me if everything's been fake so far? Like, nobody does that. <laughs> are you a real school? Are, yeah, are, exactly. you are, you, are you a real school? Are you a puppy mill uh, equivalent for education? Um, yeah. it's. Well, the government has announced that as a priority between, uh, you know, cleaning up student visas. So I guess time will tell and we'll see if they actually do something other than penalizing the students. I think that's going to be the theme of the year. Time will tell. <laughs> Time will tell, yeah. Yeah. Looking at the clock, this is uh this has been fun. Definitely um yeah, I'm well, I'm looking forward to seeing where the proposal goes for this new because something I it is very weird that there is no like there's really there's there's no mainstream business program. And I guess we haven't mentioned like outside of the startup visa program, which requires that you go through in a business incubator or an angel investor. And if you're a business that doesn't need incubation or a financial investment, right now it's uh there aren't really business programs. No, and and you know, I see what's going on again with the marketing with this program. They're supposed to be for innovators. And they're putting, you can have up to five people in in um, basically a project and people are being matched together. And at first it looked like that was a, an okay idea, but I, the, the more that time has gone on, I, you know, I see that not as being the best way to go. It should just be, you know, people that are in business together or plan a business together, or it makes sense to be together. But this- Can you imagine of- being matched with business partners? Like yeah. honestly, <laughs> for any, it's like, it's like I, I mean, again- that. Uh, yeah, honestly. And like, then trying to work through whether or not you're actually suitably matched while going through an immigration process together. It's like, yeah. Sure, that if just one person weird. fails, everyone fails. Yeah. And that's what happened. Yeah. See, when yeah. they started doing this matching, um, it was processing times took 12 months. So, you know, you can be matched, you go through an incubation program for three to four months, you know, you're becoming a permanent resident. People, 
people's lives are not going off in different directions like they are now, where it's taking 37 months. Yeah. And, you know, let's say you've been, you know, put a lot of money into this because it is costing people a lot of money, sometimes in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per person in that that business. And, you know, towards the end, somebody says, you know what, I'm going to the States. I already got my, you know, EB-5. I have no interest in going to Canada. Um, or somebody gets refused. You all go down. You know, it's like, you all go down. It's like getting a couple married, giving them three kids, and then sending them to a conflict zone together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's just not a good idea. And, it's a terrible idea. And the program is, you know, I always think of it as like a bathtub. It's like the taps are open, but at some point you're overflowing and you're going to have to slam the doors closed. So I don't know how they're going to do that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.